Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. All right. So here's the deal with the, with this series. We're pressing pause on our Mark series. We're about halfway through the book of Mark. We'll pick that back up a little bit later in the year. But here's the deal with this series: is if if, if you're new with us, we've we've done this is the second year in a row that we've done uh, this series, and uh, it was it was a great series. We learned a lot, but but it forces us as a church to align our focus every single year. Right, Because if we as a church aren't careful, and this isn't just our church, this is churches in general, it's easy for us to kind of slip into this mode of only caring about ourselves, to kind of circle the wagons, to circle our chairs, to only face inward. Uh, when I was in, uh, in, in high school, I, I had multiple youth groups that I went to, um, depending, that's not a humble brag like Brian, it just was where the cute girl was at the time, and so I went to numerous youth groups, um, but one, the one youth group I really, really got plugged in with was there was this core group of people that, man, we just hung out all the time, there were like eight to ten of us, it didn't matter um, if like it was even like we would go on Sunday nights and hang out and do the youth group thing and do the crazy game that the youth pastor had planned or whatever, but even like Friday nights when we were bored, we'd be like, hey, you guys want to, you guys want to hang out together? And we would always go to our youth pastor Josh's house. It was kind of weird, like looking back, I was like, that's kind of weird. Like we were just hanging out with like this 25-year-old guy at his house all the time and like whatever. And so we would go like Friday, hey, you guys want to, you guys want to go play video games at Josh's house? Yeah. You want to go play Risk until one in the morning at Josh's house? Yeah. Right. You want to go do a bonfire over Josh's house? Yeah. And so it was just like really like familial vibe. But then what happened is, is Josh ultimately ended up taking a job up, uh, up north of Sacramento, and um, our group kind of just kind of fell apart, right? Because all of us, everything was centered around just this Josh guy, and, and that was family, and that was comfortable, and that was home, and all this, that, that stuff. And so because of that, we never, I mean, I remember talking about the importance of, of bringing other people in and, and that sort of thing, but, um, but largely we never put any feet to that. We never talked about the importance of, or we never actually walked out the importance, rather, of, uh, of talking with other people about Jesus or inviting other people uh, into, into the fold. And don't get me wrong, there were some great things that came from it and came from that family vibe, right? I was like in a small group regularly. I know who to call when I had an issue. I always had close people to be able to hang out with because so I was bored on the weekend. But what I've come to realize that while that group was paramount to my growth as a disciple in Christ, there was never a time when we, like I said, walked out this importance of other people coming to know Jesus in a very real way. I mean, I learned a lot of Bible, right? Hung out with other Christians. We were really, really close with one another. But at the end of the day, the idea of bringing other people into the fold was never a big deal. Why? Because we were too busy having fun on our own. And if we're not careful, those are some of the things that can happen in the midst of the, of the church as a whole as well, right? I think about Wednesday night dinners. Love Wednesday night dinners. Keith, if you're in here, you do a great job. Stop getting a big head because everybody says you're a great cook, right? But that being said, Wednesday night dinners can quickly turn into, guys, this is so much fun, look what me and all of my friends do, rather than making sure that our chairs continue to face outward and we are willing to bring other people into the fold. And so this is why this is such an important series to us as a church, and important for us to do this series year after year, because we have to be reminded that as fun and, and important as showing up to church is, if all we ever do is come here on Sundays, 
have fun together on Wednesday nights in midweek, then we are truly missing a massive piece of the Christian life. Now, if you look at Matthew uh, 28, verses 19 and 20, this is the whole reason we have love God, love people, serve the world in like five million font in our lobby is because of this verse right here where it says, therefore go and make disciples of all baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Right? It doesn't say to, to come to church and listen to an adequate message that you forget about by the time you wake up from your post-church nap and do it again next week so then you feel better about yourself. The Great Commission, that, what that verse is called, says to go. It says, go make disciples, not simply hope they will come to church. And then a professional Christian like Pastor Peter or Pastor Jeff or, or Pastor Brian or Pastor Kyle or, or someone like that can then talk to them about all the questions they may have. That's not what it says. It says to go. That's what we are called to do. But we don't go because we're worried about what people will say or how do I bring up Jesus organically in conversation? Like how am I able to do something like that effectively? And these are the same fears I had when I was a youth pastor. Okay, when I was a youth pastor, part of my job um, was to, uh, to go visit campuses, right? And uh, sometimes I would be on one campus or another campus, whatever. But man, I'll tell you what, uh, cold, bad pizza is like moths to a flame if you walk onto that, onto a high school campus with that. You know what I mean? It was like I could walk on with a couple pizzas in my hand and all of a sudden people were like, oh my gosh, who's that guy? I want to go hang out with that guy. So I would bring these pizzas and go hang out with students um, and just have conversations like on their own terms, on their own turf, as it will, as it, as it were. And sometimes it was really fruitful. Most of the time I felt really, really uncomfortable though. Because again, here I am, like this 24-year-old dude walking on the campus. It's like first day of school all over again. Like, can I sit here? Can I sit with you? Will you let me sit with you, right? Like, you have cold, bad pizza? Yeah, I'm going to sit with you. And so because of that, like, I, I was able to go into, into their world, go into their realm. And because of the fact that I was in their world and in their realm, I was then able to have conversations with them that then mattered. It's the whole reason we do this series, right? Like this week, as we say that we love the next generation, we love the next generation so much that tomorrow uh, there are a couple different school campuses that we are taking lunch to every single staff member at that place tomorrow. We have three different school sites that we're going to. And we're to go, we're just going to take them lunch, and we did nice lunch. We did Panera bread, you know what I'm saying? Like, look at us. It wasn't even like cold Subway. We got Panera going on. And we're just going to say, hey, we love you. We appreciate you. We know that what you do is difficult and oftentimes thankless and can be very, very hard. And so because of that, we just want, here's a small token of our appreciation. Here's lunch on us. And so we're doing that, but then later on in the week, the Armona School District, Armona Schools, they, uh, they have like a, a back to school, or not a back to school, open house, where the kids, they get to come and they get to meet their teachers and look at their classrooms and all the shiny stuff that all of the teachers have spent way too much time working on this last week and having nightmares about, right? And so, so they're going to go there, and so what we did is we decided we were going to partner with Refuge House in Armona. And so in that partnership, we're going to do this massive party in the park for those kids and for those parents. And so we got like raffle prizes that we're going to raffle off with people. We talked to Kona Ice. They're going to have free Kona Ice for every single person. Like we didn't even have to pay for it. They're like, what are you doing? 
yeah, we want to be a part of that. So they're coming. They're donating all of, all of their stuff. We got hot dogs going on. We got uh, bounce houses going on for kids and parents. And then we get the opportunity then to talk to these people about both Refuge House and Jesus. Why? Because we're on their turf. Because we get to go and serve them. Because we get to go and love them. And at that point, we have the right to be able to speak truth into their life. If all I ever did was expect, as a youth pastor, was expect my students to come to me, and that was the only opportunity I had to speak truth into their lives, then I would have, I would have failed at my job. Same is true of us today as the Capital C Church. If all we're doing is waiting for people to come to us, and we're failing in our jobs as Christians. So we get to go and we get to serve the world. And so each and every week in this series, for the next four weeks, we get the opportunity to talk about who we love, who we are loving this week. And so this week, we get to talk about how it is that we get to love the next generation. And it's the first week of school, like it's, it's craziness. But as we're talking through this, this next generation, everybody would agree. You would be hard-pressed to find somebody who would be like, you know what? No, I don't love the next generation. Right? The only guy who says that has a garden hose and is also yelling, get off my lawn. You know what I mean? And so everybody in the room would say, yes, I care deeply about the next generation. I want the next generation, if you love Jesus, I want the next generation to have a relationship with Jesus as well. I want the next generation to contribute to society as well. I want my kids to be able to grow up and love Jesus deeply. And so like for you parents and you grandparents in the room, this should strike a chord with you about loving the next generation. Because as I look at my kids, as I look at Cooper, Micah, Owen, Colin, and Noah, I didn't even have to look at my notes to say all five of them, I'm constantly reminding myself that I have one shot at this thing. I mean, technically I have five, but one shot with each of them at this thing. And hopefully I can do everything I can to ensure that these kids, when they walk out of my house, when they move away, when they start their own families, that they are not only intelligent, they not only contribute to society, they not only know how to hit a baseball, but also, and most importantly, that they can walk out of mine and Sarah's care with the knowledge and understanding that Jesus isn't just something we talk about on Sunday, that Jesus is the Savior of the world and God willing, the Savior of their lives. If you are a believer, if you are someone who, who has placed your faith in Christ and you don't feel that same burden for your kids, man, just look at Psalm 78, 1 through 8. It reeks, it, I mean, it says, my people, hear my teaching, listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. Verse 4, we will not hide them from our descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. He has decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children, and then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would, not, they would not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. 
The next generation needs to know and love Jesus as the culture that is surrounding them is telling them both that everything is true and nothing is factual at the same time. I want my kids to know the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. I want your kids to know the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, to know what it is that he has done. I want the name of Jesus to be on their lips. But here's the deal. If that's true, and I think most of us, like I said, in here would agree, unless you're garden hose grandpa out there, like most of us would agree with this. The problem is, is we just wish it into existence, a lot of us think to ourselves, man, yeah, I really, I really deeply care about the next generation. I really hope the next generation. It's like most of us really wish we had abs too, but we don't see us making any progress in that realm, right? It's the same idea that so often we're like, yeah, I really, really hope this is going to happen. We never put any feet to it. And I think maybe part of it is because we just don't know how. How is it that we can best love the next generation in such a way that, that they would come to know who Jesus is? So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a little bit about how Jesus loved people. And we're going to take how Jesus loved people and we're going to do our best to try to apply it to, to how it is that we can love kids and students in that next generation. Because I think the first thing we need to remember is that, that Jesus didn't wait for others to come to him. Jesus actually came, came down to other people. And I think that's really, really, he didn't wait for other people to get on his level. If you look at the book of Philippians, it's actually in, in chapter two, you can read it later, we would see that Jesus didn't see equality with God as something to be grasped, but rather he humbled himself to becoming a man in order that we would know him. Meaning he was up in heaven, he had a good him and God and Holy Spirit, man, they were hanging all, they, they were hanging out, but but he knew that in order for us to get back to him, in order for us to get back to him and God for all of eternity, that he needed to go and humble himself, stretch himself into skin, as I like to say, as we celebrate in December every single year, that he came and humbled himself even to the point of being a baby, even to the point of being nailed on a cross so that we could have a relationship with him. Jesus didn't wait for other people to get on his level. Jesus was willing to come down to our level. He wasn't content with just his throne in heaven. Because Jesus, man, this guy, he had more knowledge and more power than any person on earth. Like he could have come down here and just demanded that people worship him. Like show his glory, be transfigured as had just happened in the book of Mark that we were walking through last week. People like, dang, okay, I'll worship that guy. But he didn't. He took this knowledge, he took his power, he took all of the things that he possessed and he served other people with it. He served willingly other people with it. He used that power. And so for us, as an older generation in the room, for us to have more knowledge, for us to have more power, for us to have more influence, for us to have more resources, for us to have all of those things more so than the generations behind us, at least currently, for us to have all of those things and not utilize them to impact the next generation, it's not only bad stewardship, but it's also ungodly. We need to be willing to use our time, 
our resources, our money to, be, to do whatever it is that we need to do to reach the next generation. We need to be willing to go down to them, not simply wait for them to get on our level. And I get it, right? Like I hear these sentiments, and this is generalities. I'm not talking about anybody in particular, but, but the next generation, man, they're just not patient. They need more patience in their life. Is that true? Probably. The next generation, they, need to st- they are so selfish. They need to stop making everything about them. Does the next generation have shel- selfish tendencies? Yeah, absolutely they do. You know who else did? You. It's not a generational problem. This is a human problem. This is a human issue. So what does Jesus reveal to us about solving this problem? He comes down. He empties himself. He doesn't tell the apostles to come up to this level. He comes down to them in their immaturity, in their lack of knowledge, in their lack of power, in their lack of resources, and introduces himself and allows them to come and follow him. Because when the church asks the next generation to give up all their desires and ways to connect with God, we aren't modeling what Jesus would do. We're expecting those less mature, those less powerful, those less knowledgeable to reach up instead of coming down and engaging with the next generation on their level. They need to come up to ours. That's selfish pride. That's on you to, get, to be able to get past. And hear me, like I'm speaking in generalities here, but the next generation, the next generation is fleeing the church at an alarming rate. Okay, so this morning, okay, this morning, I checked right before we came out here. We have like 95-ish kids over here, birth through fifth grade, okay? We'll round up to 100. We got about 100 kids over there. That's pastor math. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, hundreds of people over there. 100, 90, 96. 92 and four pregnant ladies, right? So <laughs> it counts, it counts, double count them. Um, but we have like 100 kids over here. Did you know that statistically speaking, 66 of those kids who, who have brought, uh, who've been brought up in church regularly, when they leave home, will not re-engage with the church? 66 of them, 66%. Only 34% of the kids who are currently in our kids' ministry are going to be following Jesus and re-engage with the church after the age of 18. That's terrifying. That's kids who, who, who are part of the church. We, we're not even talking about the, the sheer amount of people who don't even come to church anymore. Those are people who, who are simply inside the church, that two out of every three kids who are back in our kids' ministry won't come back to church after they leave home, and that's terrifying. So I don't know about you, but, but, but maybe the next generation is leaving the church for whatever reason, but there's probably a couple, exhausted from constantly having to wait for those who are already full to get even more filled up. Maybe the the next generation is leaving because they're tired of reaching up and conforming to everybody else's way of doing things. Maybe they're leaving because the church's attitude is more self-centered than Christ-centered at times. And I get it. I'm not trying to vilify everybody in the room. Like, sometimes they just don't listen. Most times they are on their phones. Ugh. Phones. They don't know how to have a real conversation with people. Two things. First off, I agree with you. 
Phones in the hands of people who don't know how to monitor themselves is dangerous. That's not an age thing. There are adults in this room who should not have a smartphone. You laugh. I've seen your Facebook posts. I think far too many teenagers honestly are giving access to the entire internet before they even know how to brush their teeth without being reminded on a regular basis. Secondly, though, so that is true, and I agree with that statement. Secondly, though, can we just stop vilifying the way they interact with each other and with the world? Because we do it all the time. When I was in high school, right, my youth pastor did this very same thing to me. I pulled out my cell phone. It was that brick Nokia that I'm pretty sure still has a charge, right, and is still, like, not broken, screen could never crack, whatever, snake guru, like, all of those different things. And I was sending a text message on that brick Nokia phone. It was T9, which meant that in order to get to an S, I had to press the 8 button four different times to type the letter S. Thank God for predictive text at some point. So I'm sitting there sending a text message to a friend of mine, and my youth pastor was just like, why don't you just call him? That's ridiculous. Why would you sit there and press that button four times to get to the letter S? Oh, it's text message. He thought it was a fad that was going to be dying. He mocked me. You know now, 98% of communication done on cell phones is through texting or direct messaging. 98%. That means phones, what were originally invented to call people with, 2% of communication is done by calling people on a phone at this point. 2%. And we vilify the next generation for being on their phones. It's the most effective form of communication now. It legitimately is. But we vilify it over and over and over again, right? He thought it was just my youth, I thought it was just some fad that would never stick. Why does this matter? Glad you asked. I'm not preaching about cell phones today. Jesus believes strongly in effective communication. Okay, if you look at Jesus and the way that he talked to people, he didn't give these these super hyper churchy uh, uh, words and definitions and all these different things. Jesus spoke in parables. He spoke in ways that normal people would be able to understand these theological concepts. That's how Jesus communicated all the time. And then he was like, hey, if you don't understand, that's on you. That he who has ears, let him hear. You You don't got ears, that's your fault. But he, that, that's the way he communicated. And the church, we should want to be able to, to effectively communicate to that generation as well. So what may work for you, which for some of you is picking up a phone that's still attached to a wall, why you still have it, I don't know. Only telemarketers call you, get rid of it. And you dial somebody's number and you have to physically talk to them. Like, that's not the most effective form of communication anymore for that generation of people. Even for my generation of people. Like, I I will do everything I possibly can not to talk to another human being when I am doing something. Like, no, if I can do it online, I'm going to do it online. 100% of the time. If I can text instead of call, I'm going to. And I get it. There's times I need to make phone calls. There's times people need to hear voice. There's times I need to sit knee to knee across from somebody and have real conversations with people. That being said, this generation, the most effective form of communication is their phone and texting and all those things. So can we throw our hands up because the next generation just doesn't communicate like we do? Or do we think, wow, they're always on their phone. How maybe can I embrace their form of communication in order to talk to them about things that actually matter? I don't know. 
have you tried texting your kids like during the day? Like, like during the day, you know that they're not supposed to have their phones on at school, but they do, I promise. Text them. Hey, how'd your test go? Hey, bro, I know that you had a crush on this girl. Have you talked to her today? You want to make it feel real uncomfortable? Hey, go ask her out on a date, <laughs> right? Or simply like little things like, hey, what can I be praying for you for today? How are you doing with Jesus today? Hey, I was reading Proverbs today and this stuck out. I just want you to know I prayed for you with this verse today. Tell me about your relationship with Jesus today. And you have those conversations with him in a medium that makes sense to them in a way that they want to communicate, and then they get home, and you chat about the girl, and you chat about the test, and you chat about, chat about the proverb, and you say, hey, turn off your phone, go put it in the basket, we're going to sit down at the table and have dinner now, and now you get to have a face-to-face -face interaction with me. There is room for both. It does not have to be one side or the other, and I think one of the big things we have to remember when it comes to how to effectively talk with the next generation about Jesus is that we have to remember that Jesus, for the most part, man, this guy didn't lecture people. Jesus loved people. Younger generations, they are used to being lectured, right? Room's not clean, lecture. You didn't do your homework, lecture. Get to class late, teacher's gonna lecture. Lecture, lecture, lecture. The vast majority of the time when Jesus was talking with people, he wasn't lecturing them. He was loving them. Actually, the, the majority of the time where he was lecturing people, and he was lecturing the adults in the room. He was lecturing the people who should have known better. Jesus, at this point, man, he was, he was lecturing the Pharisees. Look at Matthew 23, verses 2 through 4. Jesus goes off on the Pharisees here. All of Matthew 23. You want to read through it? It's great. Man, Jesus had that parent lecture down pat. This is what he's telling people. He says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. For they don't practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves, and they are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Jesus goes off on them. He lectures about them. He lectures to them on a regular basis. If you haven't been following along with us in the book of Mark, man, there's four stories in a row where Jesus goes head to head with the Pharisees, and every single time he's throwing down with them. He is lecturing them over and over and over and so you look at that, but then you can juxtapose that to the story with the woman in the well in Matthew, or John chapter 4, excuse me. And I don't have it on the screen, but, but, and you can read that account for yourself, but Jesus, he sits and he talks with her. He comes up as a man who should not at all be having a conversation with a Samaritan woman, especially a Jewish man, especially a Jewish rabbi. They shouldn't be talking at all. And Jesus comes up and he sits with her. And he asks her questions. And they talk about water. And then he changes the conversation. And he says, hey, let me tell you about this living water. That if you have this living water that I offer, that you will never thirst again. And he's talking about salvation. He's talking about the hope that people should have in him. And so he goes on and on and on and on. And he makes her very aware of the fact that, hey, just enter into a relationship with me. Like, I, here I am. I am the savior of the world. Like, he's having this deep conversation and then you know what he does after that? Then he corrects her. Then he, says, th then he says, hey, tell me about your husband. And she's like, well, I've 
I've had a lot of those. And he says, you're right when you say you've got a lot of those. And the one you're living with now, you're not even married to. And so he eventually gets to the point, he eventually gets to the point of shifting that conversation towards her becoming more holy, towards her becoming more and more like Jesus. He doesn't start with the lecture though. Why? She didn't have the knowledge. She didn't have the power. She didn't understand what it was that she was doing wrong. And so often that's the truth with our next generation is they don't have the same amount of knowledge and wisdom that we do. So it's our responsibility, not just to lecture them when they don't brush their teeth again, but to love them in such a way that they can see Jesus pouring out through us over and over and over again. I think if we began to take this approach to their next generation, showing them we care for them, showing them that we love them, showing them that there is a hope and a future for them, and we want what's best, best for them, rather than simply lecturing them about the evils of their cell phones, and we may catch a little bit of momentum with them. They may be willing to actually listen to us. If we saw them, if when we saw them running around, we had a conversation with them, asked them how they were doing. You know, Wednesday nights, for whatever reason, our junior hires, they just take like laps around our building. For those of you who come on Wednesday nights, you may have seen this. There's like 10, 12 a thousand of them who just like walk in circles around the building until junior high starts. Like that is literally the most boring thing you could do. And I see it because we've got a ring camera outside our door and like every five minutes I'm like, oh, there's the students, there's the students, there's the students. What would it look like if instead of sitting at our meals and eating with our friends that we sat with last week and the week before and the week before, if someone just like got up and did laps with our students? I mean, would you feel weird? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Some of you in here would feel real creepy. I'd feel real creepy. And I've got kids who are part of that lap-taking group. But to walk with them and spend time with them and be like, hey, tell me about TikTok. I don't even understand what it is. Like, tell me about that social media. So people just dance and lip-sync and they get paid millions of dollars? Yeah, cool. Or to engage and have actual conversations with those people. Simply ask them how they're doing, how they're doing with Jesus. We may get an actual better result. And I'm so tired of churches vilifying the next generation for growing up in a culture that they can't control. They can't control it. Because at the end of the day, the last thing we need to do for our, our next generation, like we need to prepare them for when we are no longer here. That means we can't vilify them. That means we have to understand that at some point, we are going to die. I don't know about you, but my joints crack more today than they did yesterday. We are all older today than we were yesterday. We are closer to the end of our life today than we were yesterday. You're welcome. Welcome to church, everybody. So we need to be willing to prepare that next generation for when we are no longer here. Jesus does this all the time with the disciples. He uses these teaching moments all the time. He knows he's not always going to be around, so he makes earnest work of preparing them to do ministry when he conquers death. Right? Jesus not only came down to those with, with less power, but he invested in them. He spent time preparing a group of men to take over when he left. Jesus knew his time on earth was short. He knew his mission was larger than his time on earth. And Jesus, 
Much to the chagrin of many of the Jewish leaders, didn't come to earth to build this earthly kingdom that wasn't going to sustain when he left. He recognized he had three years to finish his ministry. And so he was going to train people to carry on the ministry when he was gone so that when he died and ultimately conquered death, that that ministry would carry on. Church, we're God's plan A for the world. I say it all the time. And there is no plan B. Why? Because Jesus prepared the disciples forever ago to carry on the ministry when, they, when he was no longer on earth. The problem with a lot of churches is that we, we aren't simply aren't preparing the next generation. And if we're being honest, that we aren't actually concerned with the church after our departure. We're concerned with the church in the here and the now and my music, and my way of doing things, and my modes of communication, and my ministries that I'm going to die on a hill for. It's good. It's all good intention. But what are we doing for the next generation? And we pretend we are. Like, we pretend we care deeply. All of us do. But if we cared that deeply and saw the need that we have, we would legitimately have a waiting list of people trying to get in to serve with our kids and serve with our students. We would have so many, like if we actually did what it is that we said that we cared about, we would have so many people trying to volunteer in those areas that we would give formal interviews and say, you know what? No, you're not, you're not good enough. Sorry. We're only taking the best of the best. That's it. Like, sorry. That's all we get. That's all, like, like, we care so deeply about the next generation that we are only going to get the best people who love students the best, who love Jesus more than anybody else over there to train our kids because 34% isn't good enough. Want to put our money where our mouth is? That's where our mouth is. The next generation. And can I just for a second just shout out to our volunteers who even in the midst of this entire transitional season, right, from Danny to Brian and from Stephanie to some part-time workers and Brian giving oversight and like all of these different things, you know that we didn't lose a single volunteer in the midst of that whole shuffle. Not a single one. Yeah, you can give them a clap for them. Thank you. Like even our student ministry volunteers, who, who all of them have like personal relationships with Danny, who have known Danny forever, some of them. And they've said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to stay on. Why? Because I care about the next generation. I don't care who's in charge, I want them to know Jesus. I don't care what philosophy we put in place in order to reach them, as long as Jesus is at the center of it, they need to know who he is. We didn't lose a single one. Like they've said that the next generation is important enough that they're willing to put their personal preferences aside in order to make sure that our students have the best shot of not becoming part of that 66%. And Jesus, man, he didn't believe that power and wisdom and title and all those things were, were grounds for others to cater to them. He willingly poured himself into other people. He served others. He trained others. And the goal was for everyone to cross the finish line, not just him cross the finish line, not just those alive during his earthly ministry, everyone. Jesus came to earth with a focus on what he needed to do, but then also on God's kingdom forever. 
He came to earth with a selfless focus. And Jesus knew if the message ended with him, his mission failed. And the same is true with us. If our message of Jesus, if the message of the cross ends at this generation, then we have failed as a church. We have failed personally as Christians as well. I want my kids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids and their great-great-great-great-great-grandkids to know who Jesus is because I loved my kids and my grandkids enough and showed them who Jesus is and talked to them about who Jesus is and engaged with them in such a way that they, under, they could understand who Jesus is. That should be our goal. Do I want my kids to be smart? Yeah. Do I want them to hit a baseball further than everybody else? Yeah, absolutely, because I want a nice retirement. Do I want those things? Yeah. What do I care most deeply about? I don't care if they don't succeed at all in life as long as they are walking with the Lord in a very, very real way. We should be doing everything we can possibly do to show the next generation who Jesus is. And I think that starts with our understanding of the kingdom of God now our personal understanding of the gospel, the reminder that Jesus didn't just come for us. And this might hit different depending on your understanding of what heaven is and why Jesus came. So if you think Jesus came just to give you a golden ticket into heaven, then you probably don't care as much about this. But if you recognize that the gospel and Jesus coming to earth to save the sins of all of humanity is the single most important piece of news ever to touch the front pages, and then you're going to care a whole lot more about who gets to hear about that. So the first weekend of every, uh, of every month, first Sunday of every month, we, we receive communion. So we're going to do that now. And so if you, if you didn't get uh, communion elements, we're going to have some ushers who are walking around. You can just raise your hands and they'll be happy to take care of you. Raise your hands nice and high. But that being said, what I want you to think about as we're going to communion is one is what is your understanding of the kingdom of God now? Raise your hands if you need communion. You got this row up here, Arnie. What is your understanding of the kingdom of God now? What is it that you believe about Jesus now? Because if you believe what we would hope that you believe, that Jesus is the savior of the world, and you should be doing everything you can to make sure that next generation knows him as well. So what I want you to think about is just what is stopping you from, from loving that next generation. And I don't even want all of you to go be like, I'm going to volunteer for kids ministry. Some of you guys shouldn't be near kids ministry. Like, I do not belong in kids ministry. Zero desire to be in kids ministry. That high energy, all of that stuff. But I have a calling on my life to be a dad to five boys who are. So maybe that's it for you. Or maybe you as a grandparent, maybe you need to figure out how you can engage with your grandkids better and talk to them about things that matter. Maybe you as a parent need to figure out how you can love rather than lecture. I don't know where it is. I don't know what it is. But I do know that we need to think through our understanding of the kingdom and figure out how much it means to us that that next generation comes to know and love Jesus. And so as we receive communion today, we, we believe in what's called an open table. That means you don't have to be a member of our church to receive communion with us, but we would ask that you have placed your faith in Christ, that you've made a profession of faith before you do receive communion with us. So if that's you and you're like, hey, 
I'm not a Jesus follower or whatever. We're happy you're here. No one's watching you take communion. We just ask that you respect that. But if that is you, take this opportunity to think about the kingdom of God. Take this opportunity to think about your relationship with Jesus and how your relationship with Jesus directly impacts those who are following you. So I'm going to pray in just a second. And then after I pray, we're going to go through, we're going to sing a song together and then we'll receive communion together. So why don't you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, God, thank you for your son. Thank you for him coming to earth. Thank you for his example of love. Thank you for his example of humility. Thank you for his example of everything that that he has shown us, God. And, And Lord, I know that there are people in this room who have not yet said yes to you. And so if that's you this morning, you're like, I want, I want this Jesus that you're talking about to be Lord of my life, that I recognize that I'm a sinner, that I need to tell Jesus I'm a sinner, thank him for what he has done for me, and I want to follow him forever. If that's you this morning, I want you to pray along with me right now. Simply repeat, repeat it in your mind. Say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. B, I believe that you sent your Son to die on a cross for me. He conquered death. And C, I would choose to follow you every single day. We love you, Father. It's in your Son's name we pray.